ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. Uh, the year was seven, or 1677. Uh, John Bunyan, in prison for preaching the gospel, wrote one of the most famous books of all time, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory for the life of a believer fleeing the city of destruction and making your way to the celestial city. In the book, he meets many challenges, uh, but one of the greatest challenges, according to his friend Evangelist, would be the city known as Vanity. Vanity was most famous for the inner square where they had a fair called Vanity Fair. People lived lavishly, wantonly, immorally. Every form of vice and greed was found there. Christian, the main character in the book, and his companion Faithful, made their way through the city, desperately trying to go through without any trouble. They just wanted to make it through. But the city stops them, sees them, calls them out, specifically calls them out for not wearing the clothes that they are wearing. Your clothes look weird. They look uh, disgusting. And you're not living for the things that we're living for. So they call them in, and they bring them before a judge to put them on trial. The judge's name is Lord Hategood. And they're questioned by a jury, specifically faithful, is put on trial and questioned by a jury. One man on the jury named Envy says, My Lord, this man does not care about kings or laws. He seeks to spread his own views and to teach men what he calls faith. I heard him say just now that the ways of our town are evil. We cannot let him talk like this. Superstition says, My Lord, I know not much of this man, and I have no wish to know him more, but of this I am sure he is a bad man. Because he says that we worship what is wrong, what is false. A man by the name of Pickthank states, My Lord, I have known this man for a long time, and I've heard him say things that should not be said. He speaks against our great pr prince, Beelzebul. He says that we should not listen to him. More than this, he's been heard to criticize you. Faithful responds, I say to Mr. Envy that all the ways of life in which men do not listen to the word of God are full of sin. As to the charge of Mr. Superstition, nothing can save us if we do not come to God by way of his cross. And to Mr. Pickthank, I say that men should flee from the prince of this town and his friends, or else they are doomed for the wrath that is to come. The rest of the jury cries out for Faithful's death. They hate him. They actually say, one, one member says, let's uh, hang him. And then one other member of the jury says, that's too easy of a death. I wish I could crush him with my bare hands. What should we do? And they say, let's give him the worst death imaginable. And for them, it was burning him at the stake. Why do they hate him so much? They're walking through a town. They don't say a word. They're just walking through the town. And the town sees them, and the town says, we hate you. Why? Because they do not live for what the town lives for. They do not love what the town loves. In fact, they hate what the town loves. So the question before us today is, what does the town of Vanity love? What did Vanity Fair love the most? And in a word, we could say their greatest treasure was that of materialism. We could also call it worldliness. And it was obvious to the city that Christian and faithful did not live for those things. I wonder if it would be as obvious if we walked through the city of Vanity Fair. If the city would see us and say, it's clear you don't live for the things that we live for. All of us struggle with a lust for prosperity, a, a discontented desire for more. That's a struggle that's common to all of us. People have 
none of whatever it is they want. They have none of it, and they want more of it. They want some of it. People have some of it, want more of it. People have more of it, want all of it. You just never are satisfied. One famous billionaire said, when questioned, how, how much money is enough? How much do you need to be happy, to be content? And he just said, one dollar more. Then you get that, just one more dollar. Just a little bit more. Reminds me of the character in The Lord of the Rings, a little hobbit named Smeagol, who eventually becomes that, that wicked, despicable character, Gollum, simply because he sees the allurement of that ring. He goes after the ring, and he wants it so badly, and with greed in his heart, he becomes this hideous monster. Why is materialism so bad? Materialism is so bad, so deadly, so dangerous, because it offers you and me a satisfied life apart from God. That's why materialism is so bad. It's trying to satisfy your heart without any need for God. That's why Jesus speaks out against the love of money, against the desire for greed. 16 of the 38 parables in the Gospels are about money and possessions. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels deals with money. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven, and Jesus talked more about money than he did about hell and heaven combined. You ask, why are we saying this? Why are we talking about materialism? Well, you remember, the last two weeks we've looked at this uh, Babylon, this, this city, this woman, this harlot that the Bible describes as Babylon. And we saw that in chapter 17, mainly John is focusing on Babylon as a false religious system. You remember it was uh, Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all of these different religious systems that really began all the way back in Genesis chapter 10 with Babel. Remember, every false religion, every breed of religion came from that uh, that, that city, that town. Remember, Nimrod exalted himself. He said, I want to make for ourselves a city and a name. A city, uh, economic prosperity where we don't need God, and a name where we can glorify ourselves as God. That's what he wanted. That's what he was fighting for. And so that same desire for a religious system that can pull people away from God, you don't need God, that same desire is found in this woman who exemplifies all of those false religious ideologies. But if you remember at the end of chapter 17, verse 18, the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So she's not only a religious system, but she's also an economic system. That's why back in the Tower of Babel, they want to make a city and a name. They want to make a name to glorify themselves, a, a false religiosity where they can become God. But they also want a city. They want prosperity. They want an economic prosperity to such a level where they don't need to trust God or ask God to provide False religion starts not with atheism, but a desire to overthrow the God that clearly does exist. All false religion has a disbelief in God's word and an attempt to get to God on your own and an attempt to be God. But false religion isn't just concerned about doctrine, it's also concerned about cash, the economy that it produces. And that's what we see in chapter 18. I, I think that chapter 18 seems to be the back half of these seven years that we've been talking about, the seven years, Daniel's 70th week, uh, seven years of uh, intense persecution, difficulty, tribulation, the back half, the last three and a half years, Jesus calls the great tribulation. It's so awful. I think that's where we find ourselves in chapter 18. The facade of religion has been thrown off. You remember from last week, religion was used to bring power to the Antichrist, but once he gains that power, he just kills the harlot. He destroys her, and he rules and reigns as God himself. And so now all we have left to cover is this economic system that we're going to see in chapter 18 is being destroyed very quickly. 
In chapter 18, in the beginning of chapter 19, are songs, they're, they're dirges, they're funeral laments over Babylon as if she had died because she's going to die. And therefore, I, I believe that the verses we will look at this morning, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, will give us three specific reasons why we must be on guard against Babylon's allurement. Three specific warnings and reasons why we must be on guard against Babylon's allurement. And just like we said about the false religion of Babylon, that though it is yet to come in its ultimate climax, it is also here today. The same thing is true about this religious system. Yes, or this economic system. Yes, it's yet to come. There's going to be a city, I believe it's going to be a literal city called Babylon, that's going to grow up most likely somewhere in the Middle East. And they are going to have an economic sway over the whole world in the end times. But that power that is yet to come the, the same allurements of that power yet to come we find in our own hearts today. So let's read these verses and ask God's blessing on our time. Revelation 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For, your, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, even as she is paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning, because she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is strong. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We have had an incredible journey through this book, learning so much, yes, about the future, but really even more so about the present, learning about ourselves, learning about who you are and how to live in light of who you are. And God, here we are yet again presented with such a relevant text. So many people would only look at the future of what is yet to come. And yes, this is yet to come. But there's a reality of what is going on in what is to come that is present here with us. God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, gentle, soft, moldable hearts. We are all wealthy people. And we all have hearts that would desire with greed and discontent to be satisfied only if we had more. Materialism calls out to each and every one of us. So Father, I pray that our inner lawyer would remain silent. That as your word preaches to our hearts, that you would apply the message to us in such a way that we would walk away broken but hopeful. 
and seek to find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. Holy Spirit, we pray as we do every Lord's Day, open our eyes. We cannot see what we need to see apart from you, so open our eyes. We are fully dependent on you, reliant on you alone. To see what we need to see, to learn what we need to learn, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Three reasons why we must be on guard against Babylon's allurement. Reason number one is because Babylon will be destroyed. Babylon will be destroyed. This is verses one through three. After these things, John writes, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Now, some people would think that this might be Jesus himself because he has great authority and the earth is illumined with his glory. I don't think that it's Jesus for a number of different reasons. I think uh, the word another angel, another of the same kind of angel that we already saw, uh, it's an angel that's very specific uh, to the other angel that we saw earlier that was not Jesus. Also, he's coming down out of heaven having authority, but the earth is illumined with, I would say, the afterglow of the glory that he has. The angel bears glory because he's coming down out of heaven, just like Moses' face had glory on it when he went into the tabernacle and spoke with God. He had to veil his face, not because Moses was God, but because he spoke with God and he received the glory, he saw the glory of God that made his face shine. Remember, the fifth bowl, the fifth judgment uh, of the bowls of judgment will have plunged the world into darkness. So this angel illuminates the world with the glory of heaven. And it reminds us that the glory of heaven is better by far than anything Babylon has to offer. Out of heaven comes this angel with the glory of God behind him. Heaven is better than Babylon. Verse 2, he cries out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is commercial Babylon. This is economic Babylon, the final empire of the world. It's one city, but its influence is is global, far-reaching around the world. And this angel says that Babylon is fallen. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah 21, verse 9, that Babylon fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Direct quotation from Isaiah 21, verse 9. Also a direct uh, allusion to Jeremiah 51, verse 8. And right here, I have to pause. I know I've said this so many different times. To the degree that you understand the Old Testament, you'll understand the book of Revelation. And I want to help you with that, specifically using numbers For all of you math people, this might be very helpful to understand the degree to which the book of Revelation is built on, framed on, the Old Testament. There are 398 allusions or direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. 398, just short of 400 allusions or direct quotations in the book of Revelation from the Old Testament. 59 direct quotes from the Pentateuch, 12 allusions from Joshua through Nehemiah, 51 quotes or allusions from the poetic books, Psalms through Song of Songs. 217 either quotations or allusions from the major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel. And 59 quotes or allusions from the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. So, 398 allusions or quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. How many verses are in the book of Revelation? 404. That means we have almost a one-for-one direct quotation or allusion from the Old Testament found in every single verse of the book of Revelation. So we're not 
surprised to see fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, in Jeremiah 27, it was prophesied that Babylon would be rebuilt again, fall, be rebuilt again, fall, be rebuilt again, fall. But ultimately, there is coming a time when Babylon will be rebuilt, will, will have dominance in the world, and God will destroy Babylon never to be rebuilt again. That's what's happening here. Fallen, fallen, speaking of the greatness of her fall. Notice what she's become. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. That word for bird is the word for uh, vultures. Babylon's becoming the, the dwelling place of death and demonic activity. Their false religion has become a prison, and the vultures who seek to destroy are there. Verse 3, fallen is Babylon because all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So this is speaking not specifically to acts of sexual immorality, though I'm sure that's involved in what's going on. They're saying, uh, John is seeing this harlot, this prostitute, and everybody is committing acts of immorality with her to do whatever it takes to be one with her in purpose, in gaining global dominance and in becoming wealthy. It's not about possessing wealth. These texts, these verses and the Bible, it's not about po possessing wealth. It's about does your wealth possess you? And it's about why are you pursuing possessing wealth? But verses one through three say, Babylon is being destroyed. She has fallen. She's going to be completely destroyed because those who were inside of her economic system were using her to take advantage and to get rich and to gain power. And we need to hear that as a warning that we do not want to be sucked away by the allurements of Babylon because Babylon will ultimately be, be destroyed. Number two, we must be on guard against Babylon's allurements because God's people will be in Babylon but not be of Babylon. The reason why we need to be aware of this and warned about it is God's going to tell his people, you're going to be in it but not of it. And if you are truly God's people, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you cannot be of Babylon and follow what Babylon follows and love what Babylon loves. So the second warning to us, the reason why we cannot follow after the allurements of Babylon is because God's people will be in but not of Babylon. This is verses 4 and 5. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. That's an imperative. That's a command. Leave her so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Leave for two reasons. They're very clear in the text. Leave, number one, so that you don't participate in her deeds. Leave, number two, so that you don't participate in her punishment. Don't share in her worldliness because that's sin and don't share in sin because sin brings judgment that's what god is telling his people but i want to be very clear here because we know that this final world economic system is worldwide there's nowhere to go to get out of babylon if you're trying to hear this verse as flee a worldly system physically where do you go Everything's controlled by Babylon. Everything's owned by Babylon at this point in human history in chapter 18. So this text is not saying leave physically, though it might require you to leave a certain group of people or leave a certain area. In fact, this is a direct quotation from Jeremiah 50, where Jeremiah says, 
come out of Babylon and don't participate in her acts of wickedness. But also in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, one of my favorite passages that I've been meditating on recently is we see the world around us getting worse. We see LA getting more despicable and wicked. And we wonder, what are we to do? Well, I think Babylon was way worse than LA. And God tells the people of Israel in Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, before 11, Jeremiah uh, 29, 8, all the way through 13, he says, hey, you're in a wicked city. What are you to do? Stay there. Stay there, build a house, have a family, plant a tree, thrive in that community, and be a light to those around you. So even in Jeremiah, where this is coming from, come out of her, but stay with her. So all this is saying is be in the world, but not of the world. Don't share in her sin and thus share in her plagues. This is not a call to separate from the world, but from worldliness. This is not a call to separate from a place, but from a perspective. Why? Because, verse 5, her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That word piled up is literally in the Greek a word for glued. They've been glued together and stacked on one another all the way up to heaven. I think that's an allusion back to the Tower of Babel. These people have, have glued this city together with all of its sin as high as heaven itself. As high as heaven itself. There are going to be times when you need to flee the way that God called Lot and his family to flee physically. I think most often, though, and obviously the Old Testament's not a prescription for what we are to do. We're not living in Sodom and Gomorrah. I think, actually, Sodom and Gomorrah is way worse than what we're experiencing here. I think that this is very clearly saying, be in, but not of. Don't be of the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. Don't let the allurements of Babylon suck you away make you desire what Babylon desires. You must detach yourself in every way, shape, or form from the ideals of Babylon. Why? Why is it so important? Why is materialism so bad? Because materialism is a direct violation of the first commandment. Have no other gods before me, and materialism says I worship something else. None of us would say we worship money. None of us would say we worship possessions. The question, though, is how much of the world's thinking has captured your thinking? How much of what the world desires has captivated your affections and what you desire? The world has nice things, fun toys, bigger houses, nicer cars. Are those things becoming an allurement to you? Do you desire the things that the world desires, or are you walking through Babylon, you're walking through Vanity Fair, and the world is looking at you saying, you're clearly not living for what we're living for? It's a very subtle thing. It's a very easy thing to become like the world. By the way, I, I'm not looking down on anyone or judging anyone. I think all of us, all of us, no exceptions, struggle with materialism because we live here in America. I think all of us, without exception, struggle with materialism to one degree or another. It's very subtle to, become, to, to desire to become like the world and not even recognize how that, that subtle drift is taking place in your hearts. Listen to just some verses. I just want to read some verses. I'll give you the, the, the reference and just kind of summarize it. Here's why we should be so terrified of getting sucked into the world. Matthew 13, 22, parable of the four soils. One of the soils receives the word, takes the word, starts to grow, falls away. Why? Jesus explicitly tells us the world 
has cares and the desire for riches choke out the, the word. The cares of the world and the desire of riches choke out the world. That means that people who receive the gospel and desire to follow Jesus stop following Jesus because of money, because of materialism. Matthew 16, 26, you can gain the whole world, forfeit your soul, have nothing. John 15, verse 19, we're called not to be of the world. Be in it, yes, but not of the world. Acts 17, verse 31, why should we be on guard against the allurements of materialism and worldliness? Because, Acts 17, 31, the world's going to be judged. We don't want to be involved in its judgment. Galatians 4, 3, we were once enslaved to the world. We don't want to go back. We, we don't want to pull a Lot's wife here and look back on our former lives. We were enslaved to the world. It's corrupt passions and desires. We don't want to go back. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, we have brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. You can't attach a, a U-Haul to the back of a hearse and take it with you. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible to me. Demas, in love with the present world, left the apostle Paul and fled away. He was literally following, following one of the greatest apostles, one of the biggest authors of the New Testament, and he says, bye, I'm out of here because of the world. He loved the world. Galatians 6, verse 14, we've been crucified to the world. The world no longer has a hold on us. We've been crucified to it. How can we live in it anymore? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're commanded not to be conformed to the world. The world is trying, that Greek word for conformed is pressed into a mold. The world is trying to press you into a mold. If you come over to my house this afternoon, we typically uh, watch football and we play games. We'll hang out, we'll eat together, we fellowship, we have fun, we talk. Sometimes we'll go play basketball. Sometimes we just sit and we watch football. If we're watching football, if the kids aren't around, maybe we'll leave the commercials on. If the kids are around, we usually turn them off because commercials are so bad. But if the kids aren't around, maybe we'll watch a commercial or two. Every time a commercial comes on, that's the world trying to press you into their mold. The world's trying to grab your brain and grab your heart and say, be like us. We sit down to watch a football game and even inside of the football game, the world is trying to press us into its mold. It's vanity fair all around us saying, be like us. We're commanded to not be conformed to the world. James chapter 1, verse 27, we're commanded to remain unstained by the world. James chapter 4, verse 4, we cannot be friends of the world and friends of God. So where has worldliness taken root in your heart? Where has materialism taken root in your affections? Where has the desire to get rich, to pursue wealth, taken root in your mind? I've, I've said this before, and many of you know it because we've talked about this, but I'm, I'm scared to death of getting rich. I don't think it's ever going to happen, but I'm scared to death of getting rich. And here's why. Some of you have asked why. What's the problem with money? Well, number one, Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to go to the, to the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible because if you depend on your wealth, you'll end up saying no to God. Doesn't mean wealth is wrong, and I said I encourage uh, some of you to go make a lot of money and give it away. Live off of $60,000, $70,000 a year, give the rest away. You don't need much. But here's why I am terrified personally of becoming wealthy. If I get wealthy, here's what's going to happen. The world's going to look at me and say, oh, you got exactly what we want. You wanted what we want. You got what we want. You're no different than us. You just use church to get it. So good, church for you gets you wealthy. My job for me gets me wealthy. 
They're going to look and say, no wonder you go to church. It's not because you love Jesus. You go to church because church gives you money, which is what you love the most. And therefore, it's not Jesus whom you love. It's money. And so the world could look at me and say, we're no different, you and me. We just go about it differently. But your greatest treasure is money. My greatest treasure is money. We just go about it differently. I'm scared to death of money. I'm scared to death of what it could do to, to me personally, to my family, to, to you. I'm scared to death of what it could do to our church, what it could do to our testimony. Remember uh, Naaman? There are so many amazing stories in the Old Testament. Just one uh, to talk about today. Naaman. Remember he had leprosy? He was that Syrian man that had leprosy. He was an uh, uh, enemy of God, enemy of God's people. Says, what, how can I be healed? His servant girl says, there's a prophet of God named Elisha. He'll help you. Elisha goes, says, dip in the Jordan River seven times, come out, you won't have leprosy anymore. And he does that. And Elisha has uh, kind of like a servant boy, somebody that's helping him, that's going around with him. His name is Gehazi. And Gehazi is a wicked man. And Gehazi is watching Elisha talk to Naaman. And Naaman, after he is healed seven times in the Jordan, comes out. After he's healed of his leprosy, Naaman says, I will give you whatever amount of money you want. You just did this amazing miracle for me. I'll give you whatever you want. Here's all of this money. And Elisha says, no. And you'll see this through all the prophets. You'll see this through all of the apostles. We don't want your money. We're not doing what we're doing to get rich. No, we don't need money. And Gehazi's standing there, just kind of twiddling his thumbs, going, oh, Elisha, you're making the wrong choice. And they leave. And, and Gehazi says to Elisha, hey, uh, I left my rocks back there. Hang on one second. I got to go get them. So he goes to talk to Naaman and says, Naaman, my friend Elisha, who I work for, he changed his mind. He felt uncomfortable talking to you about getting the money that you offered, but he, he says it's okay. I'll take it. So Naaman goes, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, here, take the money. And Gehazi takes all the money. You remember what happens to Gehazi, right? He gets the exact same leprosy that Naaman had. He gets the exact same sickness. And the leprosy that clings to you when you love money is deadly, just like Gehazi. But the world will look at your leprosy that's clinging to you because you love money. They will look at it and they're going to say, man, those spots are beautiful. Man, that sickness looks amazing. And you'll start to believe them. You'll start to agree with them. Look at what I've got. I've got possessions. I've got materialism. I've got wealth. I've got prosperity. Remember the rich young man. Remember the rich young man. Those of you who have been to my house, who have been to my little corner office in my house, and you sit on that couch, right above the couch, right above your head, there's two little black shelves, and on one black shelf, there's a little plaque. A little plaque, a little board of wood. On it is glued a dollar bill, and underneath it, it says, remember the rich young man. I look at that every day. Remember the rich young man. The rich young man left. Remember the rich young ruler left. Jesus says, follow me. Give up everything. You love your stuff. Give it up and follow me. And the man walks away sad because he wants to follow Jesus, but he wants his stuff more. And I look at that dollar bill every day, and I see it, and I say, no. I don't want what that can give me. I want Jesus. And if I have Jesus and zero money, I have more than enough to be satisfied. Why do we need to be warned about the allurements of Babylon? Number one, because Babylon will be destroyed. Number two, because God's people will be in, but not of Babylon. You're called to, to leave Babylon's allurement. Number three, finally, 
We must be warned about Babylon's allurement because, number three, those involved in Babylon will receive God's wrath. Those involved in Babylon will receive God's wrath. This is verses six through eight. Pay her back, even as she has paid. Give her back double according to her deeds. In a cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. Now, we read that, and we might be tempted to think that sounds unfair. It sounds like she has sinned, you know, 50 amounts worth of sin, and God's saying, let's give her 100 amounts worth of judgment. Double it. And that would be unfair if that's what the text is saying. It's not what the text is saying. I think I can prove that to you on a couple different ways. Number one, verse seven, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to that same degree, give her torment. So it's not saying give her more than what she's done to the exact same degree. So let's go back to verse six. What is, what is John saying? What, what is this angel saying? The word double is a word in the Greek for duplicate, duplicate. So literally, it's give her a duplicate of what she's done. That's what John is seeing here. Pay her back as she has paid. That word for pay her back is literally give her, uh, pay her debt. She owes a debt and give back to her what's due. Give back to her double according to her deeds. Literally, double of the double things. So her double things, you give her double. You equal, you duplicate exactly what she's done. Give her exactly what she's done in kind and in quantity of everything that she's done. So it's not unfair. To the degree, give her the degree. To the extent of what she's done, duplicate it and give it back to her. That's all it's saying. Give her a Xerox copy of everything but in judgment. Why? Because she says, middle of verse 7, she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I'm not a widow. Which again, straight from Isaiah 47 verses 8 through 11 in my Bible, they're italic words, they're italicized, direct quote from the Old Testament. Two things characterize this woman, her self-glorification and her self-gratification. She's proud and glorifies herself and pursues self-sufficiency and she pursues self-gratification. Whatever it takes to make me happy and satisfied, that's what I will do. And for this reason, in one day, her plagues will come doesn't mean a literal 24-hour period of time. That means a quick amount of time. In fact, we're going to see in the next sermon next week, Lord willing, in one single hour, her judgment comes, meaning Babylon's destruction is not progressive. It occurs swiftly. And it's emphasized in the Greek because in, in Greek, to emphasize a word in a sentence, you put it at the very beginning, even if it grammatically doesn't really make sense. You put it at the very beginning, and that's where this word is. One day is the beginning of this Greek sentence. It's swift. It's happening now. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's happening quickly. Daniel chapter 5 records a similar fate that befell actual Babylon, ancient Babylon, a city that fell on the very night. You remember the handwriting on the wall. On this very night, your empire is going to be taken from you and given to Persia. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 20, where the rich man is a fool because he loses his barns and his soul in one night. One night, it's all taken away. Why? Why is it taken away in one day? He's going to be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is strong. God's the one doing the judging. It's from God because God will not tolerate self-deification from anyone. You're taking people away from Jesus if you say, worship me. 
for God to give his glory to anyone else would make him to be an idolater if he says someone else is better than me. So we need to be warned and clearly called out of Babylon because, number one, Babylon will be destroyed. Number two, God's people must be in but not of Babylon. And number three, those involved in Babylon will receive God's wrath. We don't want to receive God's wrath. So come out of her, my people. What are we to do with these eight verses? Just three points of application. Number one, flee Babylon's ideals. Flee Babylon's ideals. Run away as fast as you can. Don't have anything to do with the false religion of chapter 17. Don't have anything to do with the false economic system that wants to fight against God in chapter 18. Don't have anything to do with false religion or materialism. Just write down, we don't have time to go there, but write down Isaiah 52, verses 10 through 11. Isaiah 52, 10 through 11, God tells his people, if you want to go share the good news, first you have to be clean yourself, set apart from it yourself. If you want feet that bring the gospel, then you need to stay away from the sinfulness of the world. If you want feet that bring the good news to stay out of the world, then you can't be of the world. So I, I implore you, I plead with you, be content with what God has given to you. Let God provide. That's my prayer almost a daily basis from Proverbs 30. Lord, don't give me so much that I forget you and I trust my riches and don't give me so little that I start to become a thief and I have to disobey you. Just give me that sweet spot so that every day I'm waking up trusting that you will give me my daily bread. Give me that sweet spot. I just want to rely on you every day. Number two, not only flee from Babylon's ideals, work for Babylon's destruction. Work for Babylon's destruction. Now again, this is clearly Babylon to the future, but even in the here and now, work for her destruction. Psalm 137 at the very end says that you're blessed if you fight against Babylon. You're blessed if you try to destroy a corrupt system of wickedness. Not in some physical sense, in a spiritual sense, right? Our, our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the principalities of darkness. That's why, as we said last week, potentially the false religious system that is being grown that John is seeing in chapter 17, possibly, potentially, is Islam. And so 18, chapter 18, we're probably seeing an economic system that's working with Islam, through Islam, by Islam, that ultimately will take over the Middle East and will rule the world. Work to break the back of Islam. Work to fight against false gospels. How do we do that? We evangelize, we rescue people who are trapped, and we pray for the end of the, these religions. Here's one of my concerns about a, a hypersense of the sovereignty of God. I don't think you can ever hypersense it, but you can hyperapply it. And here's one of my concerns. We read the book of Revelation and we go, well, we know what's going to happen and it is inevitable. And so therefore, who really cares? Here's a concern I have for people who read the Bible and take it very seriously. We read and we go, we know the ending. We know that a false religious world system is going to grow up. We know that a false economic system is going to grow up. We know that these things are going to happen. There's going to be an antichrist. You can't stop that. And we know that he's going to be destroyed. We know that the world's going to be destroyed. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that the millennial kingdom is going to happen. We know the ending. And it'd be very easy for us to say, I think theologically informed, to say, it looks like things are just going to get worse. They are. That doesn't mean we don't stop fighting. That doesn't mean we don't say there are people here that can be saved. 
That doesn't mean we don't stay. This is one of my burdens of being here in a dark place, which again, I don't think it's as dark as most people think, but even in LA, stay, be a light, serve the people around you, and don't play the card of, well, we just know it's going to get worse, so just let it go. It's going to, but we can fight. Let's keep fighting. Let's fight. And then let's pray. Let's pray for the people that are currently blinded to these religions, satisfied by money and prosperity. God is storing, remember in Revelation chapter 6 and then in chapter 17, God's storing our prayers in a bowl, the prayers of those martyrs in a bowl, and maybe our prayers as well, and he's going to use those to pour out judgment on the earth. Pray that the day of the Lord will come quickly and that the day of the Lord will come only after we've been faithful to do our jobs and to share the gospel. Finally, number three, don't just flee from Babylon's ideals. Don't just work for Babylon's destruction. But number three, learn from those who have gone before us how to survive Babylon. Learn from those who have gone before us how to survive in the midst of Babylon. Remember, we saw in chapter 17, we've seen it a couple times, chapter 13 as well, that the religious system that will ultimately become also the, that economic system, it follows the pattern of empires that hated God's people. Right? Remember the seven hills, the seven uh, leaders? We start with Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and then that final world system. So those are all expressions of Babylon. Though they're Egypt, not Babylon, they're expressions of Babylon. So let's learn from heroes, okay? I want to do a three-minute study on heroes who have lived in Babylon and fought and overcome Babylon. Many of them you know. First, Moses, right? Let's take that first empire, Egypt. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Moses succeeded in fighting in the midst of his Babylon, which was Egypt during his day. How did he do it? How did Moses survive? Verse 23, Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. How did Moses survive Babylon in his day? He looked to a greater reward. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose, it's an act of your will to choose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses won by not being busy enjoying the world. He conquered Babylon, his Babylon, in Egypt by saying no to worldliness and saying yes to the re reward in heaven. What about Assyria? So we got Egypt, that was the first empire. What about Assyria? Who's the hero during the Assyrian empire? I think we could say it's Hosea. He was the prophet to the 10 northern tribes who were exiled by Assyria. And uh, Hosea just simply throughout his letter doesn't depend or rely on what the world depends or relies on. He trusts in God. He says God's going to provide I don't need the world. In that song that we sing, take the world, but give me Jesus. Take everything. I just want Jesus. What about Babylon? So we've got Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. Actual Babylon. 
Probably the three most famous individuals during the reign of Babylon were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know them. Uh, Fiery furnace. We will not bow. Uh, Oh, king, oh, great king, we want to respect you and honor you. You ask us to us to do anything, we will do it as long as it doesn't defy God's command. If you ask us to obey you and worship you, we can't do that. We can't worship you. And so we won't bow. And our God, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, our God can save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, it's okay. We're still not going to obey. Even if he doesn't, you and I all need an even if he doesn't clause in our faith. We know he can, but even if he doesn't, that doesn't change anything about our God. I'm not going to stop following God. I'm not going to fit into the world. They literally, physically didn't fit into the world. Everybody bows down, and they're just standing up. Uh, again, for me, I just I read the Bible, and I, I press into the white space, and with sanctified imagination, I just see one of them, just one. You've got three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and just one of them who's really struggling. This, I just put myself into the text, and I'm sure one of them maybe is struggling with faith, and when the trumpets blast and the, the horns blow, and you remember everything, the huge fanfare is supposed to happen, and they bow down, everybody bows down, and they're looking around going, everybody's bowing down, and I just, I see just one kind of going, uh, should we, guys, come on, should we, uh, no, okay, right? Like you, you see Shadrach and Meshach saying, no, we will not, and then maybe one of them struggling with doubt, no, okay, I'm going to follow my brother. I'm not bowing. What about Persia? Uh, obviously, the hero in Persia was Daniel. And this is Daniel in the lion's den, which was during the reign of Persia. Darius the king, Persian king that overthrew Nebuchadnezzar. He's very clear. I'm not going to stop following Jesus, whatever the cost. I mean, so much so that he's like, I'm not allowed to pray? Okay, let me open my curtains and pray at the windowsill. Like, even I would look at that and go, that's a little bit stupid. <laughs> you can close the curtains and pray behind them, and no one knows you're praying. He says, I don't care. Whatever the cost, I'm not going to stop following Jesus. What about Greece? We don't have any biblical record of Greece. We only have apocryphal records of Greece. We do know historically what happened. Uh, That one um, soldier broke off from Greece, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He made religion illegal. This is during the the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. He made religion illegal. He desecrated the temple. And uh, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus stood up to Antiochus Epiphanes, just like David stood up to Goliath. It was basically Judas versus Greece. And he said, I will not be passive when God's being attacked. I will not. And he fought and he won. He overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. I will not be passive when my God is under attack. Finally, Rome. How did John overcome Rome? Turn to 1 John chapter 2, and with, with this we'll be done. 1 John chapter 2. How did John successfully live in Babylon without being of Babylon. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world. This is John writing. Don't love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and with it all of its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. How did John survive Rome? How did he successfully navigate living in Babylon? He did it by knowing, I'm not going to love the world, I'm going to love Jesus. And I also know I'm looking to the reward. I get Jesus forever. You only get the world for a short amount of time in temporal time and space. One commentator says it this way, unless there is within us that which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. 
unless there is within us that which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. While Christian and faithful were being persecuted in Vanity Fair, and while faithful was being burned at the stake, there was a young man who saw both Christian and faithful taking a stand for godliness. His name was Hopeful. You remember Hopeful went up to Christian after Christian was uh, successfully let out of jail. He escaped jail. And Hopeful says, I want to run with you. I want to flee Vanity Fair. And I want to go to the celestial city. You fleeing from Babylon and from its ideals enables others to follow after you and say, I'm done with lesser things. I want soul satisfaction. You and I must choose between the two. You can either have the celestial city or you can have Vanity Fair, but you can't have both. And my plea to you is what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so clear and powerful and the ways in which we see our own hearts and our own affections. We're challenged by your word. We are convicted by our own materialism, our own worldliness, our affections for what the world loves. And God, I ask that you and your grace would break our hearts. Humble us. Help us to live for eternity, for the reward of heaven. God, that doesn't mean that wealth and riches are bad, and I pray that you would help every single person to be accountable exactly to what your word says about riches, but I do pray that we would heed the warnings of Jesus. We would heed the warnings of Paul and hear the warnings of John, that there would be a godly fear in our hearts over any desire to get rich, any desire for materialism. And God, for those that you've blessed with riches, God, I pray that they wouldn't trust in them. Guard their hearts from trusting in them. Guard their hearts from pride. Guard their hearts from materialism. Guard their hearts from thinking that they have something better, maybe something more soul-satisfying than you. Keep us free from the love of money. And may we fight against Babylon this day. I pray in your name. Amen. If you would stand with me, I want to read.